Sal, what's going on, man? Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> feel funny asking you for an introduction. I just feel like if there's people out there who are living under a rock and want to know a little bit about you and your background and kind of how you got into this whole fitness game, that'd be great. And then we could jump into it. Yeah, no problem. So um, at the moment, I'm one of the hosts and co-founders of Mind Pump Media. So we have a, a fitness and health podcast. It's uh, one of the top ones in the world. And then we have YouTube channels and written content. So essentially, it's a, it's a media company. And the goal is to provide good quality fitness and health information that's accurate, that's helpful to counter a lot of the, the terrible, bad, unhealthy information that a lot of the fitness, at least popular fitness media puts out there. Before that, I was a trainer. I trained people for over two decades. I owned a wellness facility. I've managed and grand open big gyms. And essentially, I've been doing this since I was a kid, since I was uh, 18 years old. This is what I've been doing, and uh, I've loved it ever since. Yeah, I I've, I've, I don't know which podcast it was, but I've heard a little bit about it, about your backstory and coming from like a commercial gym background and a lot of that. So I, I do resonate with that. I think a lot of personal trainers out there come from the commercial gym background, move maybe into like a more of a boutique style, trying to be independent contractors, maybe eventually moving online. So I, I can envision that process being something similar to what I've gone through. Um, you, you recently obviously published a book, came out with a book, and I would love to hear, because it's going to be contextual to what we're going to talk about today, maybe a little bit about what that's about. Yeah, no problem. You know, back in the uh, in the 70s, there was a book that came out called, uh, I believe it's called The Complete Book of Running. And uh, those of us, those of us in the fitness space who've been around for a while would recognize it by the cover. There's like a, it's like a foot in like a red, I think Nike shoe. And that book ushered in the running revolution in America. Really before that, not too many people went out and ran for health. Uh, maybe in LA, you'd see that, but no one else, nowhere else really. And it just started this whole revolution of, of running. And I wanted to do one for resistance training. I wanted to write a book that would break through a lot of the stereotypes and stigmas that surround resistance training, provide the science that supports the fact that resistance training, especially in the context of modern life and the chronic issues that we are dealing with today, things like obesity and diabetes and, you know, uh, bone mineral loss and Alzheimer's and, you know, all the issues that really plague modern societies, resistance training or, you know, using weights or machines or bands or body weight to build strength and muscle is actually the superior form of exercise to combat all of those things. And I also wanted to highlight that although cardiovascular activity does have value and benefit, when it's the sole form of exercise, when people rely upon it to achieve a lot of the things I just talked about, you know, solving obesity, for example, it's actually not a very effective approach. Um, in fact, it can actually be quite counterproductive. And, 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 you know, a big part of me wanting to write this book was really to counter the, the fact that the mainstream believes cardiovascular activity to be the best form of exercise for the things that we suffer from today. And so I wanted to kind of shed light on that and say, look, the research supports this experience has also shown me this. I've trained, you know, many, many people and in, in by proxy, probably thousands of people and trainers and coaches who've been doing this for a long time have seen the same thing. That form of exercise, when it's the only form of exercise that is used to solve obesity or some of those other chronic issues, is really a, a very ineffective approach and can often result in a rebound effect uh, with body fat. So I wanted to cover that and then wanted to make the case for resistance training. It's not just for bodybuilders. You're not going to look like a big, you know, muscular, you know, freak. For, for women, it doesn't make you look masculine. 
Um, it boosts the metabolism. It positively uh, impacts your hormones. You don't need to do quite as much of it to get this profound effect. And we can get into the details. And, you know, it's the, the research is now starting to support this. There wasn't much research to support what a lot of us trainers had seen through the years. But now the research is showing that it's just this incredible form of exercise. But again, it's, it's surrounded by so much stigma and stereotype that I wanted to write a book to reach the average person. You know, I want the average person to, when they decide, you know, uh, you know, the holiday season has been great. I've put on about 10 pounds though. I think it's time to start exercising rather than thinking I'm going to lace up my running shoes or get on a stationary bike. They think, you know what, let me grab a pair of dumbbells or let me do some body weight strength training exercises because this is very effective. Yeah, let's stick with that for a second. I, I Just to circle back, I agree. If we look at the research that looks at like exercise-only interventions, it doesn't seem to be particularly useful to create at least long-lasting weight loss uh, as just a single variable. Um, and that probably goes for, for exercise in general. You could, I'm not sure how many of those studies were implementing a resistance training protocol. I think most of them were probably at the very least something aerobic uh, based. And we do see that that doesn't have a very profound effect in like sustainable weight loss. Um, let's let's stay with this idea of like, oh, I want to lose weight and I need to choose an exercise modality that I need to, I would like to begin doing. I think that there's this, this discussion of an either or of like, oh, I'm going to lift weights or I'm going to do cardio. And if I want to lose weight, then I'm going to do cardio. And if I want to get jacked, then I'm going to do resistance, resistance right. training of some sort. It's like, how does somebody who's, a novice to this entire discussion, kind of navigate that discussion of either or. Yeah. Well, first off, you have to value exercise for, or forms of exercise for the most important value that they provide you. And that is not the amount of calories that you burn while you perform said exercise. So we've been um, a bit backwards in the sense that you know, like we understand that in order to lose weight and we'll stick with weight loss or fat loss, because that's 80% of anybody's goal who starts exercising. Okay. Most people start exercising and I'm talking about the average person, maybe not the fitness fanatic, but they start exercising because they want to lose some weight and all the things associated with weight loss or all the negative effects from weight gain. They, they want to solve that. Right. So they say, okay, what form of exercise should I choose? Now you said, you know, people are put in this position where they have, they have to choose either or uh, first and foremost, I think uh, any experienced coach will tell you that a multifaceted approach is going to be the most effective. The problem with that is that we're not facing reality. Okay. And this is something that took me a long time to figure out as a trainer, as a coach, there's optimum. And then there's what is real, what is going to really happen in real life. Now, optimum would be you exercise every day and you eat like a hunter gatherer and you, you know, you turn off your lights at six o'clock at night and all sort of stuff. It's just not realistic. Um, expecting the average person to exercise every single day, not realistic, it's not going to happen. And expecting the average person to do mul you know, multiple forms of exercise is also not realistic. Realistically, if we, if we do a really good job, and I mean us as in the fitness community, if we do a damn good job, we can probably get the average person to commit to about two or three days of structured exercise a week. That's probably about as far as we'll get. By the way, that's no easy task, okay? Fitness industries failed at this for decades. Uh, the fail rate is something like 80 to 90%. So still a big task, still a big challenge. But I think that that is about as much as we can hope for for the average person. So they're going to pick one form of exercise. Okay. We've understood for a long time that in order to lose weight, you have to create an energy imbalance. Okay. So to put it plainly, you take in less calories than you burn or you burn more calories than you take in. That's true. The problem is, is that we've, what we've done with exercise is we've said, okay, burn more calories, 
the most effective form of exercise has got to be the one that burns the most calories, right? Because that's what we're trying to do. Now, if that were true, then yes, cardio would be the best form of exercise. There, there is no form of exercise that's going to really burn more calories per hour than running. You're just going to burn the most amount of calories. But why is that not something that we should really care about? Because it doesn't mean much. And the calories burned while you exercise, your body adapts to very quickly. And then it stops becoming really a factor. What we really want to look at is what are the adaptations that forms of exercise induce in the body? And then what do those mean? So what are these adaptations? And then what are the adaptations? What are the side effects of these adaptations? So if we go back to the original you know, conversation, which is I need to find a way to burn more calories than I take in, then the forms of exercise that we should value the most are the ones that induce adaptations that cause my body to naturally burn more calories. Not manually, where I have to move in order to do that, but rather automatically to where adaptations occur in my body and then my metabolism speeds up on its own, okay? So when we look at forms of exercise from that perspective, it's very clear that resistance training is superior because what resistance training does to the body is a primary form of adaptation is it tells the body to get stronger and build some muscle. Both of those adaptations are, are very closely related and both of those adaptations tell the body we need more strength and muscle and we don't need to be as efficient with calories. In fact, strength and muscle are very calorie inefficient. They just It's like having a bigger engine in your car. It's just no matter what, you're going to burn more gas, all things being equal. So the side effect of that is a faster metabolism. Now, if we go back to cardio or running or cycling or swimming or any other form of cardio, although they burn lots of calories while being performed, the main adaptation is endurance. So it's, it's telling your body we need more stamina and endurance. Now, one of the ways that your body does this is it actually, number one, number one doesn't require much strength or muscle. In fact, it requires very little strength or muscle as evidenced by you know, find some long distance uh, runners or extreme endurance athletes. They have very little muscle and very little strength in their body, tremendous amounts of endurance and stamina. The second thing is because the form of activity itself is asking your body to burn a lot of calories, your body tries to get better at that form of exercise. So it increases endurance, but it also reduces its calorie burn. Okay. It tries to become a more efficient running or swimming or biking machine. So what happens initially is you burn a lot more calories, but then your body starts to adapt and learns how to burn less calories. Part of the way that it does is it actually pairs muscle down. So this is something that us coaches and trainers have seen for years. You know, Managing gyms, I would see the cardio fanatics come into my gym and spend an hour and a half on a Stairmaster. And you'd notice they wouldn't get any leaner. Oftentimes they would lose muscle. Um, but we didn't have any studies to support this back in the 90s. Really wasn't much science on this. Well, now we have studies to support what we've observed. And studies show that weight loss with calorie-restricted diet and cardio being the only form of exercise, the weight loss is typically close to half muscle. So, and it's not because the body's burning muscle. It's because the body's paring it down, trying to become better at that form of activity. So you lose 10 pounds and four of it is muscle the result being a slower metabolism. This is why if you're watching or listening to this and you've ever lost weight, cutting calories and just doing cardio, you notice a very fast initial weight loss, part of it being muscle. 
And then you start to plateau. Well, that's because your metabolism adapted. And then you think you find yourself in a position where you need to either do more cardio or cat, cut calories even more. And if you follow this to its conclusion, at the end of your 20 or 30 pound weight loss journey, you are now burning far fewer calories than you did when you started. And you have to move a lot and you have to eat less to maintain this new body. So it's very unsustainable. Now on the flip side, if I do resistance training and I build some strength and I build a little bit of muscle, by the way, you're not going to build tons of muscle. I want to be very clear. Obviously men can build more muscle than women. The average man can expect to gain 10 to 15 pounds of lean body mass uh, in, in a year. The average woman, probably half of something like that. You're not going to look much bigger with that muscle on your body, especially women, you know, five or six pounds of, of muscle won't make you look bigger. You'll just feel much tighter. Um, but you'll get lots of fat loss. And then what results from that is this faster metabolism. So when you do resistance training as part of your, your weight loss journey and you do it right, the, the weight on the scale moves a little slower, partially because you don't lose any muscle. So it's just body fat. But then you get kind of the snowball effect. And at the end of your 20 or 30 pound weight loss journey, if everything's done properly, you end up with a faster metabolism than you entered in with. So you might have been 30 pounds overeat, uh, excuse me, overweight, eating 2,500 calories, but now you lost 30 pounds and you're eating 2,800 calories or 3,000 calories. So you've actually made it more sustainable because you have a faster metabolism. So I, you know, I want to, I want to communicate that because I think I, I know people have no idea. They think what you said, which is, oh, weights makes me bigger, cardio makes me smaller. I just want to lose weight. Let me do the cardio. But no, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And especially if you only want to work out a couple of days a week and you want this to be sustainable and you want it to kind of happen automatically um, in the sense that your metabolism is faster, you want to do traditional resistance training you know, in a way to build strength and build muscle. And the results are just much more long lasting. And again, there's so much more that goes into this. I mean, I can go into so many other studies and details around uh, resistance training and how it affects the body. The irony is it's usually somebody who's looking for, not usually, but let's use this context, somebody who's looking for an aesthetic response. It's like, I would like to look like X picture that I sent to my coach when in reality, nine times out of 10, that person has 10, 15 pounds of more muscle than you. They also potentially are leaner than you, but it's between point A where you are and point B where this picture is, what we're talking about is yep. maybe fat loss and muscle gain, or at least, God, muscle retention along the way. And so if we're trying to maintain some sort of body composition or improve body composition, we're looking at fat loss, not really weight loss. And so this idea of like just getting smaller kind of misses the point. And I think if, if people take a second to kind of dissect what their goals actually are, muscle maintenance at the very least would be a part of that goal. And that doesn't happen if you're in a deficit just doing cardio. Yeah, we are we are wildly, modern society, societies are wildly under-muscled, okay? We are weak. We don't have much strength. Our hormones reflect this because your, your body tends to organize its hormones in the direction that your lifestyle moves it. So you see lower testosterone levels in men. You see insulin uh, resistance issues. And in women, you see these imbalances of estrogen and progesterone. We have less muscle. And our metabolisms really aren't burning many calories. And then, of course, we're surrounded by lots of very hyperpalatable food. So under-muscled, weak, then we're over fat. Also, it's important to understand that muscle is very dense in comparison to body fat. So, you know, if I were to snap my fingers and if I had magic and I could just magically make every viewer and listener gain 10 pounds of muscle and lose 10 pounds of fat simultaneously, everybody would be smaller. 
So everybody watching and listening to this, if I could do that, you would lose inches automatically, even though your weight on the scale was identical because muscle is dense and body fat is not as dense. I think body fat takes up something close to 25 or 30% more space for the same amount of weight. And then of course, there's the wonderful added side effects of a faster, hotter metabolism. And this is, I, this, I really can't understate this, you know, in, um, you know, 50,000 years ago, it was beneficial to have a very efficient, slow metabolism. I mean, food was hard to come by. You don't want to be somebody with this roaring hot 5,000 calorie a day requirement because you would die, right? Um, you wanted one that was very efficient. Today, because modern society is so radically different from the way that humans evolved for most of human history, you want the opposite. You want to be the guy or girl who's burning 5,000 calories a day just sitting at your desk, right? So, you know, if I could, if, if I could do one thing to solve the obesity epidemic, the, the fastest and easiest thing to do would be to make everybody's metabolism increase by 50%. Like if I just did that, people would just get leaner automatically, wouldn't have to change anything else. So that's kind of what we're, what we're aiming at. And then, you know, you're talking about the aesthetic differences. I tell you what, you know, I'm six, I'm six foot tall. I weigh about maybe 200, 205 pounds. And I'm probably walking around at uh, maybe 7% body fat, which is pretty lean for a man, right? If you took a man who was 205 pounds, six foot tall, 20% body fat, and you had them stand next to me, they would look very different, right? Same thing for a woman. If a woman was 145 pounds at 19% body fat, and she stood next to someone who weighed the exact same weight, but was 30% body fat, they would look radically different. So body composition is what you're looking for, not just weight off the scale. And to really hammer this home, I could cut your leg off and you'd lose 15 pounds, right? But that's not the kind of weight that I think you'd want to lose. Yeah, agreed. I think in a world where we both would agree, I think a lot of all good coaches would agree that anything is better than nothing, something is better than nothing. Like, why would resistance training, I was trying to kind of diverge the differences and maybe potential benefits between resistance training and other forms of exercise. And I was trying to pull apart some of the things that would be uniquely beneficial to resistance yeah. training. Um, and we touched on a couple of them, but let's remove the aesthetics for a second. I think we've we've hit that topic of like, hey, most people are really looking for fat loss, body recomposition, and a certain shape that muscle growth or at least muscle retention along the way is going to be a prime part of. But when we're looking at that health side, what would be unique about resistance training that you might not find with other forms of exercise? Well, it's okay. So there's a couple things that are um, radically unique about resistance training. So I'll for, cause I'll, I'll, I'll explain two of them. And they're, they're two of the most in my opinion, important differences between resistance training and other forms of exercise. So first off, and I think this is quite fascinating, is that resistance training is the only form of exercise that is specifically pro-tissue and pro-youthful hormones uh, or pro-youthful hormone levels. All right. So what does that mean? Okay. So let's back up for a second. I said pro-tissue, right? Other forms of exercise, in, in, in particular cardio, induce adaptations to the body that are anti-tissue. It's like get rid of weight. So some body fat, some muscle. Muscle is the one we're focusing on right now. Get rid of muscle to make us more efficient with uh, cardiovascular activity, more endurance, more efficient, less calorie burn, that kind of stuff. Resistance training is pro-tissue. The primary adaptation is add active tissue, add muscle. Okay, now let's think of the hormones associated with gaining muscle 
and the hormones associated with paring muscle down. So let's start with men, for example, for first. Testosterone. Testosterone has many functions in the male body, but one of them is build muscle. In fact, if I gave you testosterone injections right now, you'd probably gain a little bit of muscle, even if you change nothing about your lifestyle. So if your body is trying to pare muscle down, if I'm running like crazy, doing lots of long distance running, and my body wants to pare muscle down, it will organize my hormones in a way to make that happen. One of the things that it'll do, and studies support this, is chronic cardiovascular activity in men reliably lowers testosterone levels. So it'll bring testosterone levels down. And the theory is, and the reason probably is because it needs lower testosterone to pair the muscle down to make you more efficient at, and to be more effective at what you're asking it to do. Now with resistance training, because I'm telling my body to build muscle, it reliably raises testosterone. In fact, it's the only form of exercise that has, that will consistently raise testosterone levels in men, regardless of whether or not your testosterone is low or in the middle or high. Now, other forms of exercise may raise testosterone if it's really low and it improves your health in some way, but nothing directly raises testosterone like uh, resistance training. It also upregulates androgen receptors. So these are the receptors that testosterone attaches to in order to become active. So your body actually opens up more of these receptors to make your testosterone more effective because you're telling it to build muscle, right? So you get these youthful levels of testosterone. You also get youthful levels of growth hormone. Okay. This is true for women as well. And your body increases its insulin sensitivity very reliably. In fact, adding muscle is one of the most effective ways to improve insulin sensitivity. There's actually some very interesting studies that were done on the super obese where they had them gain muscle, they had them do nothing else, they didn't even lose any weight, and just adding muscle to their body, they saw this significant improvement in insulin sensitivity. In women, you see this balancing of estrogen or progesterone in a way to, again, in a more youthful way to promote some muscle strength and gain. You also, in women, will see testosterone levels become more youthful. Testosterone also plays a, an important role in, in uh, women's health. You see cortisol levels start to balance out, right? Too much cortisol can cause uh, the body to lose muscle. Uh, you want it to be balanced. Too little cortisol, you have no energy, right? Resistance training tends to give you this nice muscle building effect with cortisol. So you get these youthful levels of hormones because you're telling your body to build muscle. Now, a lot of the side effects, by the way, of these youthful hormones are you feel younger, right? You feel better. You have more energy. There's so many hormone clinics now opening where people will go and actually get injections to make this happen, resistance training can, can do this for you uh, naturally. So that's one profound, unique effect of resistance training you don't find specifically with any other form of exercise. Here's another one. And this one I think is, this one really you know hits it out of the park. One of the biggest challenges with the average person in relation to exercise is consistency. It's very hard to stay consistent week in and week out, okay? Um, and this is true even for the average person that takes their health seriously. And it usually looks something like three weeks on, one week off. I guess if you average it out for the year, for people who are consistent, they'll typically take, you know, 10 to 12 weeks off uh, out of a year cumulatively. It's kind of what it looks like. I'm talking about, the again, the average person who's relatively consistent, not the fitness fanatic. Now, that's a problem when 
your primary benefit of your exercise is the exercise itself and while you do it. Okay. So while I'm doing it, I'm getting a benefit. When I'm not doing it, I'm not necessarily getting lots of benefit. Resistance training is unique in the sense that you do get lots of benefit while you do it, but through the muscle building process, you start to actually develop something called muscle memory. So first off, when you stop resistance training, your body loses strength at a much slower pace than if you stop cardio and you lose stamina and endurance. That happens actually quite quickly. Strength sticks around for a long time. In fact, there was an interesting study where they took two groups of men. One group of men worked out for three weeks and took a week off, and they just did that consistently. The other group of men worked out every single week. At the end of the 16-week study, they were very similar in their strength and muscle gain. Now, of course, the people who took the week off, you'd see a little bit of a dip with that week off, but then they'd bounce back very quickly. So at the end, it really didn't make that big of a difference. Now, I, I do want to be clear. I'm not saying there are no additional benefits from being active on a consistent basis, but from just a muscle and strength and metabolism effect, it's, it was pretty much equivalent, even though one group took a week off every, you know, every three weeks, which is pretty insane. Also, if you take longer than that off, let's say, I'll give you an example. Let's say, you know, earlier I said the average man if they did a good job and were consistent for a year, would gain 10 to 15 pounds of muscle. So let's say they gained 12 pounds of muscle in a year and they were consistent and then whatever, life happened, something happened and they stopped exercising for three months and they lost every single pound of muscle that it took a year to gain. So they, they, they gained 12 pounds of muscle, it took them a whole year to build that. At the end of three weeks, three months, they lost all 12 pounds of muscle that they gained the previous year. And then they decide, okay, uh, I'm going to get back into it. You know, my life is settled. Things have gotten a little bit more consistent. Let's get back to the gym. They will gain, regain that 12 pounds in a very short period of time, probably in about a month and a half or two months. So it might've taken them a year to gain that initial 12 pounds and then they lost it, but to gain it back was a fraction of the time. And this is a well-documented effect, uh, a physiological effect the body knows muscle memory. Your body, the first time it builds muscle takes a long time. The second or third time or fourth time, it happens very quickly. If you've ever had a cast on a body part uh, and you took the cast off and had to kind of heal and rebuild, you know what I'm talking about. It's like, oh my God, my arm has no muscle. And then very quickly, that muscle comes back. This is what resistance training does as well. Now, why is this important uh, to understand? Because if we, again, if we understand the context of, of modern life and the average person, I mean, doesn't that work perfectly in, into our tendencies of missing workouts here and there, right? And it's, uh, it's very encouraging. It's sustainable. It's far more sustainable. So the hormone effect and the more permanence of the results are two just incredible, unique benefits of resistance training that I think really hammer home that this is a form of exercise that if you, could, if you only picked one, do this one. I would probably, I would probably just add to that, like high, that like tier one unique uh, adaptations or benefits to like the actual loading of tissues and bones and the fighting of sarcopenia and osteopenia. There's just nothing else that if, if you're not loading those tissues and bones with resistance, that's beyond just you moving your arm, that natural degradation that's going to happen with age is going to happen a whole lot quicker. And you can actually either halt that or obviously just prolong that or slow down the curve in which that happens only through resistance training. Like running is probably has it maybe a potential counter benefit or a counter effect on that long term. And if you're talking about resistance training, this is the only form of 
exercise that's really going to be able to, you know, create a, a meaningful difference in in fighting osteopenia and sarcopenia and some yes. of that like frailty that happens later in life. Absolutely. And Jordan, you know, it's um, so I'm so excited because we're now in the time when the medical community is starting to recognize the longevity and health benefits of resistance training. And that's because the studies are finally we're finally starting to see lots of studies done on longevity, health and resistance training. You know, in the past, there were none. If you found any study on exercise and health and longevity, it was cardio. It was they always picked that. And I think they I think researchers just thought activities activity so you know the difference between them is minor let's just pick the easiest one we can get people to run or we can put mice on a treadmill or, or a hamster wheel really easy to study so let's just do that so there were no studies but now there's lots of studies and the studies are showing um again that resistance training for longevity is is not isn't just great it's actually superior in many ways one of my favorites is how they're showing so we've we've done cardiovascular stress tests for a long time, right? Where people run on a treadmill, they test your cardiovascular health, and then they'll take that and correlate it to longevity. And there definitely is a, cor a correlation, right? If you got really poor cardiovascular performance, then that's correlated to higher rates of, Everything. you know, all-cause mortality, right? And so they've done this. But you know what's a better predictor? In fact, not only is what I'm about to talk about a better predictor, but what I'm about to talk about is actually one of the best single metric predictors of all-cause mortality. So uh, just to be clear, if you want to predict someone's all-cause mortality, you use multiple facets of information. There is no perfect one metric, right? But there is one metric that's actually one of the best predictors. And that's a strength test. It's actually better than a cardiovascular test. And it's a simple strength test. Test your grip. And they've shown this, that people's grip strength, which represents overall body strength, right? Will better predict all-cause mortality than almost, almost any other single metric better than the cardiovascular stress tests. So strength is what we are lacking. And that's what we need to focus on when we're talking about um, longevity. And you don't need to do a lot to improve upon it. I think the average person two days a week with a good resistance training routine profoundly could impact their strength over years. There's so much you could do with two days a week to build uh, that kind of strength. You mentioned bone. Uh, what builds muscle builds bone. That's the bottom line. What makes you lose muscle also makes you lose bone. Muscle, muscle anchors to bone. This is why you see long-distance runners maintain uh, bone mineral density in their lower body, probably due to the impact of running. They tend to lose bone mineral density in their upper body. Resistance training builds bone mineral density everywhere, every single place it's applied. You know, one thing you didn't talk about was Alzheimer's. You know, we're talking about longevity. So dementia and Alzheimer's has got to be up there, right? There was a study out of Sydney, Australia that studied resistance training and its effects on the beta amyloid plaque buildup, which we know is one of the causes of the symptoms, right? Of It's one of the hallmark uh, pieces of, of Alzheimer's. And, you know, drugs aimed at stopping Alzheimer's or reversing it tend to be aimed at preventing these beta amyloid plaque builds up, buildups. Well, before the study, there was really no natural intervention that we'd seen that could really stop or maybe even reverse this process until they studied resistance training and its effects on these beta amyloid plaques. And what they found was, and, and this was according to the study, it was the first non-medical intervention that looked like it reversed this kind of progression of Alzheimer's. 
Now, uh, a lot of researchers think this might have to do with the insulin sensitizing effects. You know, a lot of researchers call Alzheimer's and dementia type three diabetes and resistance training had this incredible effect on that. So it's, it's great for the brain and brain health. And the irony of course is, and again, this is one of the things that I try to battle with this book is the stereotype and stigma of the dumb meathead. You know, the irony is we think of the guy or girl who just lifts weights as not being very smart, but the truth is they're doing the one form of exercise. That's probably the best for the brain. Agreed. And I think that that, as we get, I may be at any case, but as we age, I feel like that quality of life and that I want to keep my brain healthy and my body strong become, you know, creep up the priority list a little bit. And while aesthetics is still totally relevant thing that I'm totally fine with, and I think it's totally human to have those. I think as we age, we start to trend towards like my quality of life. I want my brain to be healthy. I want my body to be strong. I don't want to be frail. I don't want to fall and break a bone and, you know, see my health go, you know, super downhill from there to go back to the grip strength comment. Cause I feel like there's going to be somebody out there who's like immediately on Amazon, like buying one of those grippers. It's a, it's a representation of strength. It's not necessarily like Correct. the guy with the huge forearms is it's independent variable that is inversely correlated with all cause mortality. It's like, it's a representation of strength. And so it, that, that is a good test. It's very simple to do and it can, we can extract that to, Hey, if on average, I have a stronger grip. That's probably because I've been doing resistance training for some time. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. It, it represents overall body strength. I'm so glad you made that distinction. They've also done studies uh, that are strength uh, related where they'll, uh, they'll ask people to see if they could stand up off the ground. So they'll sit them on the ground. Can you stand up without grabbing onto something, which is also another representation of strength. But it, remember in the medical community, they're always looking for the easiest test uh, that'll, that'll, you know, present kind of what they're looking for. And a grip test is super easy. Like I can get grandma to sit in the, you know, uh, doctor's office and squeeze something. And if that shows me overall body strength that represents overall body strength as good as getting up off the floor, which requires, I got to put grandma on the floor, get her to stand up. It's real hard. Then that's the one they're going to stick to. And that's what they found. The, the grip strength test is a pretty damn good representation. I think a perfect test obviously would look at their squat and their, you know, can you support yourself and can but um, they're not going to do that. They're looking for something simple that they can have anybody do. And, you know, when you compare it to single metrics like lipid profile, blood pressure, cardiovascular performance, like the strength test actually outperforms a lot of these. And I think if you take the strength test, this is probably what it's going to be in the future. Because like I said earlier, you know, although single metrics aren't the best, to, they're not better than multiple metrics. Again, strength is a better predictor than other single metrics. But I think in the future, what they'll do is they'll say, we're going to take all these metrics and include your grip strength test. And then we'll get a very clear picture uh, in comparison to what we've used before in terms of all-cause mortality. I feel like it's important to, to highlight again that this the health benefits, and it, it, I'm, the more I think about it, the more I think it, it goes for more than just resistance training. But a lot of times, the health benefits of certain adaptations have been disproportionately in the beginning and you get a big return on a little bit. And so if you're, what we see is that, you know, if you have obesity or you're at a place where body weight is affecting or negatively affecting overall health, we see that a lot of those health benefits happen with like 10% of weight loss. And so you might be sitting there thinking, well, I need to lose 80 pounds to be healthy. And chances are you might see amazing, you know, health benefits from a biomarker perspective with less than you think. And the same goes for building muscle. If you think you need to be you know, Sal 210, 7% body fat. And that's when you get the benefits of having muscle. It is actually quite, you know, uh, a bit easier than that to kind of reap some of those benefits. It's actually 
probably there's a, an actual point of diminishing returns and maybe even negative returns. Of yes. You're so big now that your body's very costs costs a lot metabolically, and that might even be negatively correlated. And so if you're out there, and you're like, oh, I don't have any muscle, and so I'm very far away from getting and reaping some of these benefits. You're actually not far away at all, and you're in a position where all of these stimuli and all these adaptations are very novel. And so you can probably get a lot of these in a very short, relatively short to the benefit that you get span of time. Yeah, no, no, that's great. I'm glad you said that because what we often do is look at the extremes as the examples. So, you know, people would look at pro bodybuilders. Oh, I don't want to look like that. Or does that mean that they're the healthiest? No, no extreme. Anything is optimal for longevity. Okay. So um, no, you know, the extreme endurance athlete, the extreme, Strength athlete, those are not the, those are, that's extreme performance. That's different than longevity with, and you're exactly right. There's this kind of bell curve, right? So you get great benefits and then, oh, oh no, I want to look like Mr. Olympia. Well, now you're going to start getting diminishing returns because of the things you have to do to your body to accomplish these ridiculous feats or whatever. No, no, no. The average person, really what you're aiming for, you know, I say build muscle. Okay. Let's forget that for a second. Here's what you really want to do. Just get stronger. Now you don't need to be the strongest person around. I'm not talking about extreme performance, but if you could build 50% more strength, you know, if, if Mrs. Johnson can go from barely squatting her own body with good, with, with any good stability to being able to do 30 good body weight squats, right? You don't have to have a weight on her, on her back, just 30 good, stable, controlled body weight squats, profound health benefits come from that. And the metabolism boost, I want to be clear too, by the way, we're talking about metabolism boosting and muscle building, a lot of people in the fitness industry attribute the added tissue to the metabolism boost. Now that's partially true. So what I mean by that is if I have five more pounds of muscle on my body, it will require more calories to support those five more pounds, right? Because they're active, right? Muscle is an active tissue. It's relatively expensive in comparison to other tissues, especially body fat. Body fat doesn't require very many calories to maintain. Muscle requires much more calories, but that's only part of it, right? It's not this direct one-to-one -one relationship because I know there's people who say, oh, I've seen studies that show that, you know, you only gain another 15 calories per pound of muscle, you know, or whatever. And, and by the way, even if that were true, if you only gained, even if it was 10 more pounds of, of excuse me, 10 more calories per pound of body weight. So you only gain 50 more calories a day and burning with five pounds of muscle do that over the course of a year, it actually makes a big difference. But still, that's not accurate because the metabolism is far more complex than that, okay? We have a range of calories that our metabolism will burn with our current lean body mass. And our body can become more or less efficient with the same lean body mass that we have. So if I took you, for example, and cut your calories, before you lost any muscle and before you see any significant weight loss, your metabolism will start to adapt a little bit. Same thing if I bust, if I boosted your calories, and that's just an example of some of the, the working space. Well, when I'm asking my body to build strength, when I'm asking my body to build muscle, even if I'm not gaining muscle, I'm just sending that signal that strength is a priority. My body leans more towards less efficiency in terms of calories. So this is why I could train a female client have her gain five pounds of, of lean body mass on the scale. But now, and you know, by the way, there's more to this. I would also combine it with a high protein diet to fuel this a little bit or whatever. But this is why I would see them get, you know, 500 calories, 600 calorie boost in their metabolism. Like she's eating 600 more calories a day and uh, burning it off. And she's only gaining another five pounds of muscle. 
there's that that room to play within. We don't fully understand it, but it's it's we've observed it. We know it's there. And so again, the the metabolism boosting effects aren't just from the fact that you're gaining actual tissue, but rather because what you're asking your body to do tells the body we don't need to be so efficient with calories. I also find that to be, and we can decide whether it's wholly physiological, but I would posit that there's also, let's take that same female client who's maybe never pursued uh, growing muscle and strength. All of a sudden, the calories that you're eating no longer just represent, oh, I'm getting bigger or, or I'm getting smaller or I need to eat less so that I can be smaller. They represent this goal that you have because they are the fuel that is required to build muscle. If you're not eating, you know, if you're in a yeah. deficit or you're eating less or whatever, you're going to have less uh, uh, muscle gain. And so all of a sudden this this how much I'm eating, eating more has now a positive connotation because I've adopted this muscle building goal. And so I find that even if it's even if it's part physiological, because I've gained several pounds of muscle, which is more metabolically active and I'm burning more calories and, and and thus I can, you know, eat more. I also feel like mentally people become more okay with and more inclined to actually find out what the upper end of their maintenance is. And so whether it's I actually gained 300, 400 extra calories that I could eat, or I could always have eaten those or a percentage of those, but now I'm more inclined to actually seek out that tipping point of the upper end of that maintenance range. I find that to be a really nice experience because most of the time that, that, you know, I would like people, I'd like everybody listening to be able to eat the most that they can whilst at the body composition that they want. That's where you're going to have most optimal cognition and health and training and recomposition effects. And so I find that even just adopting these muscle building goals, people tend to start to be okay with, you know, more inclined to kind of find out where that upper end of their maintenance is. Yeah, that's a good point. I think, uh, especially with, uh, with women, if you're, you know, women have been so bombarded with media and, uh, you know, skinny expectations that women are afraid much more than men to gain any kind of weight, even if it's muscle. This is a conversation I've had to had you know, with clients thousands of times, female clients, like, okay, we're going to build muscle, but don't worry. You're not going to look big and body and all the stuff that we talked about. Right. Yeah. But once they, they're, once they're bought in and then they say, okay, well, I'm going to try and get stronger. It's one of the healthiest switches and mentalities that you'll ever notice. Okay. So here you have a woman who's been concerned for most of her life, probably since puberty with gaining weight and I need to be skinny and, oh, I got to watch what I eat. And this kind of back and forth with the, the diet and some body image issues. And now she says, okay, I'm bought in. I want to get stronger. That means I got to fuel my body more. I got to eat more protein, make sure I don't, you know, not eat because otherwise I'm not going to get strong. Ooh, feeling strong. That feels great. And wow, I feel stable and secure in my body. I feel more independent. You know, now I can do things that I couldn't do before. I could lift my luggage and put it in the overhead compartment in the plane. And, and oh my gosh, I, I feel sculpted and, and, you know, my body feels hard and my metabolism is faster. And I'm, and I like strength. Let me go for that. Like that is a very positive relationship with exercise, especially when you compare it to maybe the one that a lot of them had experienced before, which is who I can't eat. I need to lose weight. I don't look good. I need to get smaller. I need to get skinnier. Now they're like, let me see how much I can lift. I like to get stronger. Ooh, I got to eat. Let me eat foods that'll help me get stronger. Like what a what a profound difference in the mentality and the association and relationship with exercise. And that is everything. So if you've ever trained or coached clients for more than a few years, you start to figure out that the psychological piece, right? The, the mental aspect is the most important aspect. Well, if I could get people to have that positive association with exercise, and if I can get people who've always been concerned with losing weight 
to start to focus on wanting to get stronger, like it's that's 90% right there. It's, it's so um, it's so profound. I can't, there's not, there's no words to even explain it. I've seen women completely change their relationship to exercise and change their self image because they were not no longer afraid of gaining anything. And now they liked being strong. And then all of a sudden it was like, you know, it was like magic, like, wow, this is something I really enjoy versus restrict, punish, restrict, punish, you know, the relationship they had before with exercise. I think the, the the truth is the there's still probably more more marketing towards the you know smaller is better skinny do a ton of cardio hit class than there is on the you know let's build some muscle let's be strong but I would definitely say and and I've been thinking about this for a little while I would definitely say we are moving in the right direction we have we're moving along that continuum and I would I would have to throw some some props to this like this glute gain um, you know, craziness that's going on where everybody is trying to grow their glutes. I would, you know, it's an aesthetic. It's a very specific aesthetic pursuit that, you know, you could say comes with some other issues, but, but there has never been so many women trying to deadlift heavier, trying to hip thrust heavier, trying to squat heavier, trying to get into the gym. And, you know, it has, it is just every person that I come in contact with that has like, let's say, you know, that specific goal, we worked together for six months. And it's created, it's been a gateway for them to massively, like you said, you know, change their mentality towards this whole thing and, and indirectly almost, you know, unknowingly reap a lot of these benefits where I was like, all right, I wanted to grow my glutes. And now all of a sudden I just freaking love being strong. I love the, the strength aspect of this. And now I'm reaping a lot of those health benefits. Yeah, no, two things about that. One is you, what you see in the hardcore fitness industry uh, five years later starts to permeate the mainstream. So you're referring to mostly people who are somewhat in the fitness space, fitness fanatics and women who want to work out like, Oh, I want to build my butt. I want to build my hamstrings. You still don't really hear that too much with the average, like my aunt or my neighbor. Sure. They're still stuck in the, like, I just got to lose weight type of thing, but it is starting to change. Definitely. Um, I mean, I, women never squatted and deadlifted in gyms when I, I mean, nobody did actually, when I was uh, first started, now you're seeing lots of people squat and deadlift and do these great strength building exercises. CrossFit probably is part of the reason for that. Another you mentioned building your butt is part of it. And, uh, the stigma is starting to change a little bit. Um, actually, actually, I just heard, uh, Adele, um, talk about yep. how, you know, resistance training was the key to her weight loss, which I think, oh, this is great because. She's somebody that lost a lot of weight. She's in the mainstream. So the, the messaging is starting to change. You also have the medical community now starting, because those studies I talked about, and there's many more, are starting to really identify that resistance training is this really effective form of exercise for all these issues that we're confronting. So I think the time is right. I think we're in the beginning. I mean, the book is called The Resistance Training Revolution, and I I think the timing's perfect. I think we're probably in the beginning of this revolution of understanding exercise, where it was always cardio-based, sweat, 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 move, 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 burn, 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 to now people are starting to realize, like, wait a minute, you know, building strength, building muscle, this is a very effective way to get what I want. I don't need to spend much, as much time doing it. It's very healthy. It feels good. Like, maybe this is what I, I should focus on. So, I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, like I said, I've been in the space for, you know, I don't know, 24 years. So, so good, almost two and a half decades. And the attitudes have changed significantly. Still a lot of room for change, though. There's, this conversation still needs to be had. But we're at the beginning of it. And I, it's exciting for me. It really is because 
you know, I think if the average person really understood this and applied it and just did two days a week, just two days a week of traditional resistance training, and they were able to stick with it for six months at least just to get the ball rolling. Cause I said, like, it's a snowball effect. I think people would be blown away. They would really would be blown away. I mean, one of the number one comments I would get from clients, you know, uh, who, who I train is six months into their, their training with me, they'd come to me and say, my body's just getting leaner. This is really weird. Or I'm not struggling or I'm eating more. How am I getting leaner? This is very interesting. I'm like well, we're, we're working, we're, your body's working with what you're trying to do, not against. That's why it feels so different. And that's the way it should feel, by the way. Like your workouts should make you feel more energized, should make you feel better and should add a quality of life, uh, improvement quality. Of, it should not feel like you're going to war when you go work out and beat yourself up. And I know in the short term, that's fun and exciting. There's not a long-term approach. I'm just telling you right now, you're not going to want to go two days a week and feel like you're going to die in some, in, in some crazy boot camp class. Long, long-term, it's just not an effective strategy. Agreed. So we have a couple minutes. I want to pivot just to one other question that I get freaking every single day on a Q&A. And you had had a tweet. I'm going to read it out and call you out in a good way and just have you elaborate on it a little bit. Uh, okay. and the tweet was the best way to improve real and functional flexibility for most people is not stretching. The best exercise method for improving flexibility is properly applied full range of motion resistance training. would yep. love to hear a, an expansion. We can have a, a short discussion. We got a couple minutes here. Yeah, no problem. So uh, flexibility represents a range of motion. Functional flexibility is the range of motion you actually have control and strength within. So those are two different things. So to give you an example, I have a one-year-old son. He's got tremendous flexibility. I can put him in the splits. I can take his feet, put him by his head. But he doesn't have great functional flexibility. He doesn't have any strength in those positions. Like he can't, I can't put him in the splits and then leave him alone and have him stand up. He'll fall over or try to get up. And, you know, it's quite awkward. I can't, you know, put his legs by his head and then, you know, uh, add a little bit of resistance. to. He'd be, he'll be stuck, right? He'd be, I could put a blanket on him in that position. He'd probably be stuck there, right? So you don't have, functional flexibility is, Range of motion with control. Flexibility without control is actually uh, a high risk of injury. So it's like, oh, I'm in this deep stretch. I have no control, no strength. And then your kid jumps on your shoulders or you got to get up real quick and ah, I tear something or hurt myself, right? So you want control within ranges of motion. Strength training, proper strength training or proper resistance training with its full ranges of motion builds strength in those ranges of motion. So you get functional flexibility. There's studies now that support this. They compare proper resistance training to just static stretching. And proper resistance training reduces the risk of injury at a far higher rate and produces greater gains in functional flexibility. Now, if your goal is just to have crazy range of motion, then yeah, sit there and stretch statically and you're fine. But if you want to have ranges of motion that you own that you control, that you feel stable in, and you want to be able to function your everyday life this way, then resistance training is there's hands down superior. Yeah. I think that that's where the misconception is of like, I think that it comes from maybe a baseline, uh, a heightened level of importance that people are conceptual. People think that this, uh, having this like passive flexibility is somehow important in their day-to-day -day life like i would first if somebody's like hey should i be static stretching you know after my workouts and it's like well is there something in your day-to-day -day life that you're having trouble doing 
otherwise that becomes non-specific flexibility and unless you're a contortionist or you're in you know you're, you're trying to be a gymnast or whatever there's probably a certain level of flexibility which beyond you you don't need it doesn't improve your in quality of life in any way and you had mentioned uh you know owning versus renting range of motion which i think is a really really good way of putting it and that that sometimes comes to you know should i foam roll before i work out a lot of this stuff and so sometimes I wouldn't maybe go so far. I think we could have a good argument about why that could actually be a, a very big negative. But think about like think about mobilizing a ton before your heavy squat day. It's like you walk into the gym, you can squat to parallel, you have good technique, but you just arbitrarily want to go deeper. And so 15 minutes of mobility work later, you can get three extra inches. It's like you rented that range of motion for this workout. And now you're going to strap a bar on your back. Now you're going to have you know, you're going to be working through really, really heavy loads in this range of motion that you don't really own, that you've rented for today, and you haven't really built up that strength and stability to kind of put you in a non-injurious place and really own it. And so I'm not against any form of mobility and stretching. I think it's context dependent, but I do think that if you are looking to improve your range of motion within the this this like day-to-day -day functional amount of flexibility mobility that just take those muscles load them through your own active range which is individual by the way like if you can squat to parallel and that's where you can go squat to parallel and you will find over time with good technique and load management that that might move along that spectrum and i just think that there's also a time component like how many times we feel like oh, should, I be, should i be stretching it's like we, we had just talked about, you know, hoping to get people to do something three days a week. It's like, I'd rather you spend those 30 minutes with good full range of motion, properly execute, executed resistance training, and you'll probably get a lot of ancillary benefits, flexibility, mobility, strength, stability, whatever word you want to put will be one of them. Right. And you use the gymnasts as an example. Gymnasts do a lot of static stretching, but then they also do a lot of strengthening in those ranges of motion. So you got to, you, you have to connect to and build strength in a range of motion Otherwise, that range of motion becomes a liability um, and can in increase your risk uh, of injury. I mean, hyperflexibility without strength is one of the most injury-prone uh, positions. It's actually worse than being tight. Uh, the, you know, being loose with no strength is actually one of the worst things. So, yes, absolutely for functional, everyday flexibility, you know, traditional resistance training exercises are incredible uh, for those things. And again, if you want to add static stretching, just like if you want to add a little cardio and, you know, you want to add other forms of exercise, that's totally fine. But if I'm talking to the average person, you know, like I said, we're going to get two hours a week out of them <laughs> total, right. like spend it doing the thing that's going to give you the most return. I also think that there's a misconception of, or you're trying to diagnose the fact that you are quote tight. And in reality, Again, I'm not going to try and diagnose everybody in this podcast, but a lot of times what you're 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 feeling as tightness is really weakness. And yes. there's a, a, a you know, my hamstrings are tight could mean a lot of things, but it's most likely not that you have some chronic shortness, but which by the way is not what what being inflexible is. Flexibility is mostly neurological. It's like being able to turn off that signal and allow you into that range of motion. And so most of the time it's not like, wow, my muscle is literally shorter. That is not what's happening. Very often it is a strength issue to begin with. Yeah, if your body senses um, a higher risk of injury and you're injury prone, what it does is it sends a signal to those surrounding muscles Don't to stay there. tight and limit your range of motion. So it's like, oh, I'm really tight in my shoulders. It's because your shoulders lack stability and strength and your body's like, oh, keep everything in this one position or don't allow it out of this range of motion because uh, we're going to hurt ourselves. Well, if you increase your strength, through these new ranges of motion, your central nervous system is not going to have to do that. And that's what you find. You find that you feel less tight. To give an example, it's like the tightness people will feel in their neck and they'll get massages on to press on and they're like, oh, I'm so tight in my neck. And I'm so, reality is if you strength muscles that support your shoulder girdle and maybe offset that, 
all of a sudden that tightness goes away through strengthening, right? So it's through, clients would always freak out over that too. This is so weird. I'm getting stronger and yet I don't feel as tight. I thought strength made you tighter. No, it's the opposite. It actually makes things move better and makes them less tight. Yeah, agreed. All right, Sal, I want to be respectful of your time. We're coming up on an hour. Why don't you tell everyone where they can find the book, plug away. I'll link everything in the show notes and we'll let you get on your way. Thank you. So you can go to the resistance training revolution.com or you can go to Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Target, anywhere you find books, you'll find the resistance training revolution. And then of course, if you want to listen to more of me and more of these conversations or conversations like this, you can find me on the mind pump podcast. That's you can find that anywhere podcasts are, are shown. Um, or you can find us on YouTube, Mind Pump, uh, or you can find me on Instagram, Mind Pump Sal. Excellent. Thanks for coming on, bud. Yeah, no problem. Appreciate it. Have a good one. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.